Welcome to A Therapist Tales, a podcast where Jacqueline Sabodi works to normalize conversations about mental health. Hi, and welcome back to A Therapist Tales. I'm Jacqueline Sabodi, and joining me today is Melissa Donahue. Melissa Donahue is a certified sex therapist and supervisor, enhancing the lives of individuals and couples in her private practice in Ridgewood, New Jersey, and at the Center for Sexual Wellness in Morristown. She's a presenter, mentor, and strong advocate for accurate sexual education for all. She is currently a doctoral student at Rutgers School of Social Work. Melissa, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. Totally. I know this is like a fun out of the box topic. So I was uh, excited to have you join. Yes. Yeah. So do you want to tell um, our listeners a little bit how you got into the industry and why you decided to specialize in it? Sure. It's actually a really interesting story. It was never my focus originally. I originally went to graduate school and I was planning on working in geriatrics. And as I was experiencing geriatrics, I found that people would keep asking me questions about sex. Mm. There would be, you know, instances in facilities or with patients where the topic of intimacy would come up, whether it was with somebody in the facility or with their partner. And I thought that was really interesting. And then when I left that field and I went into um, substance abuse, I found the same themes would show up. I would run these support groups and people would say they've never had sex sober. And they didn't know what it was like or what it would be like. And I was like, oh, this is interesting. This topic is still following me. And then I went into oncology and the same thing happened where people would say to me, can I still have sex when I'm having chemotherapy? Will my partner's chemotherapy come into my body when Uh we're sexually active? And there were so many questions about, you know, infections and pregnancy and how to to do it. And Mm -hmm. no one knew who to talk to. And I thought it was so funny that no matter where I went with whatever population, they would always ask me and, and they would, always, it, it, it just followed me. So I had gone to a conference and I sat next to this really amazing mentor that I had. And she was telling me that she was a sex therapist. I was like, Oh, that sounds pretty interesting. And she says to me, what do you do? And I gave her my whole history. She goes, so you're a sex therapist, but you don't even know it yet. <laughs> I love that. So I ended up going through certification through ASAC. It turned out I seemed to have most of the criteria completed already because it was something I've always I had been doing since my undergraduate experience. And I got certified as a sex therapist through ASAC and decided that, you know, I wanted to leave the institutions and open a private practice. And it was originally geared towards oncology patients. Oh, cool. Mm-hmm. And when I opened the practice, everybody else came but oncology patients. <laughs> Wrong game and that's just how the, that's how the practice started. Mm -hmm. I feel like it's so like, um, it's so unique. It's such a unique niche. Um, it's one of those ones that kind of like raises people's eyebrows, like outside the field and in the field. Right. Um, so I'm sure you've had that and had to navigate that. You know, it's one of my, my husband's favorite, um, parts of a conversation, you know, prior to COVID when we would socialize a lot more, my husband would love it when people would ask what we did for work. And depending on the environment, you know, and depending on my mood, I'd either be very direct and say, oh, I'm a certified sex therapist, you know, and wait, Here's for the them, loop. Wait, wait for them to spit their drink out or, you know, just like their eyebrows raised. Or I would, I would, you know, do, I would play the game. Oh, I'm a social worker. Oh, I'm in private practice. I work with adults and couples before I would get there. I, sometimes I would let, I would let it simmer. 
And my husband always loved to watch the dance of introducing what I did for work. Um, I'm just grateful that I opened the practice after we were already together and not before, (laughs) because I can only imagine what the navigation would be like trying to date, you know, and have that as my career. That's so true. That's so funny. I think, um, when we first met, um, which was at, you know, our, um, our, uh, intro session for, uh, uh, our doctoral program, you had said that I was sitting behind you and I was like, Oh, I want to know her. <laughs> I hope she's in my cohort. <laughs> and here we are. Yeah. Um, let's get into some of the um, meat and potatoes of our conversation. So let's talk about definitions. What is sex and who gets to define it? It's a really interesting question. And I find that that is one of the most challenging questions to answer because everybody has a different definition. Um, you know, Sex, I think, in society is tend to be defined by more intercourse, Mm -hmm. where people think I only have sex when a penis goes inside the vagina. Well, there's a couple of problems with that. The first is that's assuming that you're heterosexual Mm -hmm. and you have those body parts, number one. Number two, why is nothing else defined as sex? And what about all the other sexual activities where there is body parts being touched, fluid exchange, you know, um, pleasure being, you know, received, why is nothing else considered sex? But we Mm -hmm. keep this idea of a penis going inside the vagina as sex Mm -hmm. or going all the way. And it's funny because when I ask couples that come into my office, what is your sexual routines or what is your sexual habits or the frequency? Well, they'll say, oh, we have sex once a week. I was like, okay, that's the only time you touch your partner. And it's so fascinating that we've we've developed this definition based on that. And I think a lot of that comes and is molded out of sexual education that we get in the public schools is that when we're taught how to make a baby, well, that's how sex is, because we we were trying. The goal of all the sexual education was to prevent pregnancies, you know, in teenagers, prevent them younger age. So we have to tell them how to make a baby. And we define sex by how you make a baby. And it's also like layered with anxiety versus pleasure is okay. And pleasure is good. And this is how you pleasure yourself. And this is how you enjoy pleasure with a partner. But I don't, but if you think about what sexual education is in the schools, there is no discussion about pleasure. No, no. It's all about. It's all about the mechanic. Right. Right. It's all right. It's all about, this is how you make a baby. Number one, this is how we're going to prevent you from making a baby. Number two. And these are all the diseases you're going to get if you decide to have sex when you're not in the correct situation that we as a society, whatever society you're in is going to define as correct. And like when I was in school, they separate the boys and girls, which makes it even more uncomfortable and creates that internal shame and and awkwardness at this young age when sexual hormones are starting to um, present themselves and creates a lot of confusion that it's wrong, right? Like that's also one of the early messages. It's funny. I remember, so I grew up in New Jersey and I remember our first sexual education class was, I believe in fifth grade, if I remember correctly. And the girls Mm -hmm. were learning about, and they started with the girls teaching them the period. It was the period class. The boys Mm -hmm. got to go outside in spring and play kickball and the girls got to have the period talk. (laughs) And now there were some girls that were already well-developed in my fifth grade class. I'm sure they were already menstruating. You know, Mm -hmm. they all had bras on. We were all wearing bras at some version at that point. And they may have missed the boat there and giving us the talk because my feeling is, is that the idea of discussing sex shouldn't be starting when menstruation is happening in puberty. You should be having the discussion when people are learning body parts. That's when sex education starts to start normalizing it. 
And and when they learn language too, like this is your body. And right. so when you're teaching children what your elbow is, this is the, el- you know, we don't call it a bendy thing. We call it an elbow. We don't <laughs> shame the elbow. Right. You know, we don't call this the smelling factory. We call it a nose. We don't shame it or make up pet names for it. So, you know, you call a vulva a vulva. That's the, what you see. Nobody can see the vagina unless, I mean, nobody individually can see their own vagina. I don't know that people buy devices to look inside their body. Vagina is inside. But everyone <laughs> always likes to call it a vagina. But you can't, I mean, your doctor can see the vagina when they, they do like a, an examination, but individuals don't see their vagina. No one, I don't know people that flexible. Right. Right. And, but, but, you know, we want to shame the vulva and we want to shame the women's body parts. So we call it all these pet names. No, it's a vulva. Call it what it is. We don't, we don't shame any other body parts. So you know for at the end of the podcast, we always like pull quotes from like what people say. Like, I think your quotes can be like, call it the vulva. <laughs> right. I mean, I, I have so many, I've had so many moms approach me at the schoolyard and say, okay, so it's our daughters are in whatever grade at this point. What should, when should I start having the talk? And I'm like, well, what talk? Five years ago. <laughs> and I was like, my daughter learned her body parts when we did all the body parts. My daughter knows, you know, how babies are made, you know you know, in lots of different fashions for all different types of families. My daughter knows, you know, the parts that are involved. And my daughter knows that that's when, when people want to have a child or, or, you know, or how they do it. Like this, this discussion happened years ago. The other thing, like, um, just coming back to the piece about education is um, the lack of inclusivity in terms of sexual education being about intercourse with a penis and a vagina, like you're not addressing then a huge population, whether it's, you know, gay, lesbian, trans, like they, mm-hmm. you know, so I'd be curious, like about how is education changed? Has it not? How, what language are they using with children? So New Jersey apparently is the leading state in the country about sexual education. Mm. Is interesting, you know, from my lens, I'm kind of curious to see what the curriculum will be like as my children get, you know, are raised in New Jersey as well. Because, you know, according to them, they're getting sexual education in kindergarten. And I mean, sex education in kindergarten, my feeling is, is that we talk about how families are different because that's part of sex education, understanding that not all families are male, female, number mm-hmm. one. And number two is starting to talk about consent. I mean, consent mm-hmm. should have been started in preschool, but we're gonna, we're gonna honor the fact that not every family does preschool, not every family does kindergarten either. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, because they're not legally required to be in school till first grade, but we should be talking about consent because if we don't start preparing children about what consent is at a very young age and that, you know, about touching their, touching them in school, touching them in line, touching them on the playground. When people say no, the no means no. And we should learn that when we're younger. On. So when we start getting more um, socialized as and unsupervised, when someone says no, we still understand that message that no means no in other areas of our life. Mm-hmm. So that's where the, I mean, so when people hear, oh, sex education's in kindergarten, that's awful. It's disgusting. It's vulgar. It's not. You're, t- you're talking about the basics of consent. You're talking about the basics of how, a, what a family looks like, why families look different, why we should be accepting of different families. That's where sex education starts. And part of it is, is a cultural shift, right? Like our society and culture are getting more comfortable with these types of conversations. Are you like, do you, have you come aware um, across any, um, interracial couples that like it's it's different like for someone who is of this racial background versus this racial background and they look at sex differently have you seen that well culturally you know there is a lot of difference i mean there are you know in in 
in, you know, Caucasian families, it's a very different weight families. It's very different than families that have like a Spanish heritage, you know, mm-hmm. where, how they look at menstruation um, management, you know, and, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and how religion also interests, there's a lot of intersexuality with a culture and religion too, about right. what, what that all means. But what I think is important is, is that if we stop focusing so much on the mechanics of sex, mm-hmm. kids can figure that out. It doesn't matter. What, the, what kids are craving is skin touch. Mm-hmm. And what we should be teaching them is how to have skin, get your skin touch in and have pleasure and ways to do it safely and ways to do it and want and doing it with someone who wants to do it with you. Mm-hmm. So like intermixing the whole idea of consent with pleasure and skin touch, I think is like one of the key points. I mean, that's what people are really looking for when they start becoming sexually active is they haven't been touched in a long time. Think about like when kids get to a certain age, like I guess around like puberty, you know, little boys especially are not touched by their moms and dads anymore. Oh, get away, get away. Mom, stop. You're embarrassing me. They're not being touched by their parents, whomever their parents are, because people want to give them space for, for their puberty and for their development. But who doesn't like to be touched? Right. It really is a biological imperative for us to connect and, and have that. Yeah. Right. So what they, and you know, what people start, they start getting surging of hormones and interest, and then they start deciding who they like, boy, girl, whatever the definition of who their, their, their attraction is. And they want to touch mm-hmm. and they want to touch and they want to feel the skin. And the only way to really touch people where it's acceptable is to be sexual, have a sexual encounter in some ways. Right. And, and that idea that there's something wrong then I need to hide it. I think that's also part of the problem. I mean, we, I mean, we talked about masturbation very briefly in the beginning, but this whole idea of self-pleasure, I mean, there is so much shame about masturbation, particularly with women, like nobody, I mean, nobody wants to, right. I try and talk about it. Right. Like, you know, I I treat a range of teens and emerging adults and, and adult women. And I'm like, yeah, let's talk about, are you self-pleasuring? Are you masturbating? Like, how do you communicate with your partner, what you enjoy and what you need? And yeah. And I try at a young age to normalize that. And that's an important. So I would even rephrase it differently and say to them, how often do you do it? And just mm-hmm. assume that everyone does. Cause, cause when you ask somebody, do you, it puts like, Oh my God, am I like, do I, am I allowed to say it? Is it embarrassing? Or are they going to think I'm a dirty person? Uh-huh. Does, you know, if their religion says that you're not supposed to touch themselves, like, well, will God know, like, so it, it becomes like a big thing. So in my office, I ask them how often they do it. I just assume everyone does. I like that. And that's a good tip for like therapists that are listening. Like these are little tools to kind of shift the um, conversation. Let's talk a little bit about how um, you've seen men and women um, define sex differently in our society. Well, what's interesting is I find a lot of women will say, if I start being sexual with my partner, particularly in in a heterosexual relationship, if I start being sexual with my partner, if I get changed in front of them, if you know, if I want to kiss them a little bit, if I want to cuddle with them, they assume that I want to have sex. It's like an invitation. And I say, and I say to them, well, what does that mean? And they'll say, well, they'll want, they'll they'll want to do go all the way. They'll want intercourse. And I'll say, well, why does it always have to end with that? Why is that always a menu item? I always tell people like, let's think about like your, your sexual life, your sexual life as like a, a menu in a restaurant. Like, what are the things that you want to do? And you can order them like tapas. You can order things here and there, it doesn't have to be, you're not having the full course meal all the time. You're not getting dessert. Right. It's not always, you're not always having an orgasm. You can have sex without an orgasm or you can have sex without penetration. And I get a lot of people like sideways looking and like you could see the hamster wheels going in their brain. Like, what is that? 
Mm-hmm. But the reality is, is that, you know, sex is always defined as, a, you know, ending with a male orgasm. It's so true. Yeah. And it's, and, and I always tell people, why, why, why can't, why can't a man just walk up to him and say, I feel like pleasuring you tonight. They pleasure her and then they go to bed. Why okay. does it always right. have to involve the male's orgasm? Social, cultural. You know, I think it goes, I, I, this kind of goes back to the whole thing of education. Like if we teach mm-hmm. people that sex is how to make a baby and we're saying that sex is for baby making and we're not going to talk about that sex actually is for pleasure for a lot of people. Most people are not trying to make babies as much as they're having sex. Right, right. But if we if we keep talking about it as making a baby, well, then there has to be an ejaculation. There needs sperm. Right. And that's the only right. way to get the baby is to get the sperm out. So we right. have to have the end. But if you ask any male people, you know, males out there that are in heterosexual relationships, what does it feel like to be sexual with your partner and spend 30 minutes kissing and fondling and touching and embracing their whole, all their whole body without having an erection? I mean, I'm sorry, not without having, without having an ejaculation, you know, what is the experience like? Mm-hmm. And they all say it's pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. I mean, much different. it's different. It's an amazing experience that they've never had. Would they want it all the time? Probably not. But just like anything. You don't want the same thing all the time. You want variety of some sort. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was going to ask something or add something, but it's out of my head now. Oh, with, so I, you know, I primarily treat emerging adults. Um, their lens through which they look at sex is a lot more casual, I yeah. think, than it's ever been. And I think that's a huge cultural change. And I don't know, I don't know how to feel about it. You know, um, it's, it's definitely interesting and different. Um, I also worry about just safe sex practices. I have a lot of, you know, females I treat and not using protection or don't know how many sexual partners someone's had, or, you know, having sex very casually, like, you know, just meeting someone and being drunk and going out. Um, so have you seen that too? I think there's definitely a much, a definitely a different shift. You know, there's a certain generation of people that grew up with HIV and AIDS mm. that have a totally different perspective about mm-hmm. sex and mm-hmm. their experience, depending when they were an emerging adult during that or where they were in their, in their developmental stage with that Absolutely. and the experience that they had. And I think where you kind of grow up sexually and emerge sexually and what's going on culturally with mm-hmm. um, really can shape your, your lens about sex. That's a good point. Yeah. Um, you know, most of the adults that are coming into my office were exposed to that experience at some part, whether they were coming into puberty, were you know, were in puberty, were in college, and what that experience was like and how it shaped them as sexual people. Mm-hmm. I think there's definitely a much more casual um situation with sex now with the, you know, middle schoolers and high schoolers and even in, in college um age children. Um and I say children because they're not, I, I always think of them as children until they kind of graduate, which is probably, yes. uh, you know, not mm-hmm. fair to them. They want to be seen as adults more, but and there's a lot of growing up and learning to do and, and navigating relationships. I mean, I hear all the time where d- definitions of sex get shifted, where you know, girls will be giving oral sex mm-hmm. in middle school because it's not sex. Or I've heard lots of girls will do anal sex at a young age because it's not sex, only the vagina is considered sex. Mm-hmm. So they're being active and they're giving and they're offering their bodies, but they're not receiving anything. Mm-hmm. And they think that they're not being sexual. So how they, are you seeing this middle school? You said it's happening in middle schools. Wow. People don't want to believe it, but it happens in middle schools. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I've seen a lot much more increase and also just um, overtly sexualized behavior in terms of clothing, in terms of makeup, you know, 
a lot more of a promiscuous culture um, now in middle school. I think also social media adds to that, just accessibility too. Yeah, social media is definitely not as positive as people want to sit, th- want to think it is. I mean, that whole article that just came out recently about the negative, um, you know, situations with teenage girls and and how it's affecting their body image and their mm-hmm. self esteem. You know, using Instagram and stuff like that. I think that's been going. That you know, I think people use social media to portray a certain image. They're mm-hmm. not doing it to portray real life. And, you know, it's one of the things that I think parents need to talk about. It's one of the things that we talk about with our children all the time, trying to encourage them. You know, we put things on social media about our children to share it with our family who's across the country who doesn't see us regularly. We want them to see our children grow up in in all lights, good, bad and different. You know, but there are plenty of people who use social media to show like the perfect whatever. And I don't want to spend 10 hours trying to get the perfect lens or use the perfect filter. But that's what people do. And then and then there's lots of, you know, interpretations of that. Yeah, it can be really confusing, really confusing. I think also like, you know, body image intersects with, you know, this topic as well. And that's a really confusing. Absolutely. Yeah, that can be, um, that, I mean, that's for a whole other um, podcast, but that's another confusing message I yes. think, for this yeah, younger um, demographic. Um, so we talked a little bit about where we learn about sex. Just I think that was just one part. My, my also is like family, like how does family um, tell us about sex? And why is this important? Why does it matter how we learn about it? Well, I think the first thing to, to think about is, is that, you know, when you, when you're a parent teaching about sex at home, because it really should start at home, right? That, that's where my, I, you can't wait till you get to the public school because most of the people that teach sex ed in the public school are your gym teacher who've had what 150 hours of sexual education. Maybe they, they're not degreed educators regarding sex. They don't. And, and, and again, whoever is the teacher of sex comes with their own baggage of their own religion, their values, their cultural upbringing, what their family taught them, their sexual experiences, and they bring all of that to the table. So whatever their biases are, are going to shape the lens of what you're going to teach. Right. Whether it's in your own family, whether it's a, a therapist or a professional that you see or an educator in the school. And you I know. think the, the, um, the thing is too, is like, you know, the first message of intimacy and relationships and love really does come from your family system, right? Like, how do you see your parents interact and express affection towards one another? Well, that's one of the questions I ask when people come in, you know, tell me about your parents. Do you see them, you know, were they affectionate? Were they loving towards each other? And people will say, I don't know. Like right. we, people say I had a good family. I'm like, no one's judging whether your family was a good family or right. whether your parents were good parents. But I'm asking you, did you see your mom and dad hug or kiss? Did right. you show them do nice things for each other, tokens of appreciation or love, or did they say thank you? Or did they bicker? Did they seem cold and distant to each other? Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's like you kids absorb what relationships are like by what happens in the home. And if there's yelling and screaming and fighting, I'm not saying that you're bad people for doing it because some people need to learn regulation management, mm-hmm. but your kids learn that as healthy relationships because that's normal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily healthy, but it's healthy to them because that's what they see. Right. That's what has been modeled to them as, as a relationship. And the same thing happens with sex. So when you're, when you have um, people who are uncomfortable talking about sex and trying to teach it at home and you're adding to the level of shame, you know, Right. Our bodies, our bodies are sexual beings. We're all sexual beings. You know, you can't stamp that out of someone. You can't, you know, minimize it. You can't ignore it. We're all sexual beings and little boys and little girls and all children are touching themselves at a very young age. I mean, diaper changes, yes. people are touching themselves. You know, people say, well, my daughter doesn't masturbate. I don't, you know, but if you see them on a chair, a chair arm, 
you see them sitting on their heel. You see them, you know, jumping up and down on a stuffed animal. You see them on the on the edge of the couch. That's that's all self pleasure. It doesn't have to be with the hand. Right, right. So they're all doing it, and there are plenty of people that use masturbation to fall asleep at night. And it's not masturbation to ejaculate or to orgasm. It's masturbation for relaxing because if you touch yourself, it feels nice. It's a self soother. It's relaxing. Mm-hmm. And and it releases a lot of chemicals and hormones in the brain. Right. Yes. So if we learn that at a young age, wow, this feels really nice and I can calm myself down and I can fall asleep easier because I touched myself, we shouldn't be shaming that. Right. Right. I think that's a big culture shift. Yes. Um, How do women learn about pleasure and do they? (laughs) Judging by how many women I have to have an orgasm. No, I would say most women don't have a clue how to do it. Mm. Um. Plenty of women come to my practice and say, I've never had an orgasm. My partner wants me to have an orgasm, doesn't understand why I don't want one. And they're like, I'm fine. It's fine. I don't need one. What? Yeah. Or they'll say, I don't know if I had one. And I would, and I say them all the time, you know, if you have one, it's just, you know, it's not, it's, it's not just like, it's something that you miss. It doesn't go by like a ship. <laughs> right. We and, do not hear the train. <laughs> and it, well, and, and, I, and I try not to make them feel bad about it, you know, but because, you know, what you don't know, you don't know. Mm -hmm. But what's always interesting is when we get there and they can come back in and say, oh yeah, you're right. I (laughs) I never did have one before. That's, that's, that's what I, that's it. Oh, okay. Now I get it. Mm -hmm. The shift in there, so much of them changes. I mean, there was one particular woman I remember working with who had had a really, uh, I would say their relationship, her marriage was falling apart. Mm-hmm. And she had never had an orgasm, didn't know what one was, didn't know if she needed one. And then the relationship decided to dissolve and they divorced. And, and we had gotten her, um, worked on her, her self-esteem and her self-body image and working on her having an orgasm. And I just remember her coming back in saying, I bought the vibrator that you said, I did what you said. And it didn't happen the first time or the second, but the third time I figured it out. And, oh my God, you're right. Why did I not want to do this sooner? <laughs> And it was just really nice to see. And it was really nice to be able to have a conversation and see how much of her came alive mm-hmm. when she was able to really like where she could create pleasure for herself. And now she could bring it into any relationship she was choosing to go into in the future. I also just wonder how relationships break down if there isn't, whether it, you know, it's, it's intercourse or there is no sex, like how, you know, the emotional part for individuals, like how this all plays into, um, this layer of, of being, um, in partnership. Well, I always tell people, if you don't feel safe with your partner, with Mm -hmm. your clothes on, there is no way you're taking your clothes Mm -hmm. off and being more vulnerable, naked and sharing your body with them. And that's why people, when they, they, I mean, people come into sex therapy, when they're on the outs of the relationship, the relationship is pretty close to ending at that point. Mm-hmm. People get desperate where they're going to hold on to the sex. You know, they could be having problems for years. I mean, 10, 15 years before they come in and they decide they want to work on the sex. I'm like, well, what about everything else going on in the relationship? Mm-hmm. You have to work on that piece too, or that piece first. Right. Is there even a relationship left? You know, are you still feeling connected to your partner in the ways that you're talking about? Like, can you still feel safe emotionally? Can, do you still want to be vulnerable with that person? And you need to be able to talk about things that you like. I mean, I think women have been traditionally told that they need to always wait for their partner that, Mm. you know, the man is the leader. He's the economic leader. You wait for him to call for dates. You know, you wait for all, you wait for him to propose to you. You wait for all of these things for the man. You wait for, Mm -hmm. um, for him to initiate sex. And I think women 
have every right to be the initiators. You know, I mean, if it was at 19, it was at 1955, I think good housekeeping had like how to prepare your home for when your man comes home or something. It was like, some, <laughs> if, if you have a chance to look at it, mm-hmm. like, and you look at what the values were in the fifties of like, make sure you're like in pretty clothing and make sure the children are clean, but quiet, you know, make sure you vacuum the house, like all these things, make sure it's quiet in the home so they can relax, like be what? available, ask questions of your, of your, of your husband when they came home. I was like, what about her day? What about her needs? And, you know, and still in relationships, there is always an initiator and somebody that's a little bit more submissive in the relationship. And, and I'm not saying that men are always the initiator. There are some women that are, but I feel like there needs to be more women taking charge saying, I like this. I want this. Give me, I deserve this. Do this for me in bed. I do this for you in bed. Why can't you do this for me? Right. Or sharing fantasies too. Absolutely. There needs to be, there needs to be more discussion. There's nothing wrong with a woman talking about her needs in bed. It doesn't make her a bad person. It doesn't make her a dirty person. It makes her somebody who knows what she wants and is confident enough to ask for it. Yeah. Um, this is a bit of a, of a projection and I guess a professional question. Um, sometimes I struggle, you know, as a gender heterosexual female. And when I have um, individuals that are trans or are um, in the same sex relationship, I struggle to know the right and proper language to really aid and help clients address their sex lives. Um, Because, you know, when I'm talking to someone where I understand what their sex life is going to look like in a heterosexual um, relationship, it's a bit easier for me. So I wonder if you have any tips, because I think that's probably relatively common, you know, um, to gender heterosexual treating individuals that are you know, trans or um, same sex relationships. Well, I mean, I think the first great shift is that we're all asking people pronouns now. You know, you start, you start with the pronouns, like, how do you want to be addressed? Mm -hmm. You know, and then say to them, okay, so, you know, they have to understand their own pleasure. I mean, especially when you're, when you're depending on how you're viewing your body. I mean, if people who are, you know, considering, you know, how their body is, do they love their body? Do they not love their body? Where do they get their pleasure with their body? And asking them, well, how do you get pleasure with your body? Do you like, you know, do you like the way your body is displayed? I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, when you're trying to decide how you're going to express you know, you have your sexual expression with clothing, you get to pick the clothing, but when you take the wrapper off and you're naked, are you Mm -hmm. okay expressing yourself the way it is? And how do you want people to pleasure you? How do you want Mm -hmm. to pleasure yourself? I think it's a good way to ask them, you know, what, what, how much do you want to share yourself and how much do you want to keep yourself to yourself, you know, to your own body Mm -hmm. and trying to ask them what their sexual practices are. There's no right or wrong answer on the frequency of sex or what sex needs to look like. I think everyone's always saying, well, am I, am I in the zone? Doing it enough. <laughs> right. Did I check all the boxes to be like a good lover for the week? Right. You know? right. And the reality is, is that it could be once a month. It could be once a week. It could be four times a week. It depends on what the people negotiate in their relationship. Right. What their need is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I feel like sex addiction is probably a whole other <laughs> podcast, but that would be like another fascinating topic too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's, there's definitely a lot to talk about there. Yeah. Um, talking about women and pleasure, um, do they learn about pleasure um, and how they learn about pleasure? Um, I think the other thing is like, why is it that we have created or we live in a culture that is dominated by, like you're saying, like ejaculation is the finishing point? You know, I, I mean, until I think we shift, I, I would love... <clears throat> I would love for the education about sex to shift away from mechanics. Mm-hmm. And if I think we start focusing on why people want to be sexual is because of pleasure and stop 
adding to the shame, I think mm-hmm. that's when that will shift. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't know. I don't know that that's going to happen anytime soon as progressive as we've gotten. Totally. We still have states that are absence only states. They don't want education. They don't want to discuss. I mean, we're lucky in our state that they do sex education, but again, it still needs to be, it needs to be altered. It needs to be changed to be able to change the views going forward. I mean, there's been a lot of shift in generations and older and younger generations from us, but until we start minimizing the shame about sex and minimizing the shame about our bodies and touching our bodies, it's never going to shift. Yeah. I remember also just like being probably middle school and like learning about stuff from peers. Like I remember like learning about semen, like specifically. And I was like, what? <laughs> like being horrified, like this is what happens, you know? And these things stick out. Um, I think I the boys should have taken that, that puberty. Like when we talked about earlier, when the, like the girls getting like the, like the period tell us, I think the boys should have had the period class and the girls should have had a chance to go out and have kickball. I mean, how many men are still repulsed by like their partner, like bleeding once a month? I'm like, you should, you know, maybe you should be happy we're bleeding once a month. It means that we're not having a child when we're not ready for a child or we don't right. want a child, you know, and sometimes it's a good thing. It's not always a bad thing. It's not a dirty thing. It's a natural body thing. Yeah. I, um, I have one, uh, clinician that I work with and she was working with a family. The dad kept, kept saying he's about a, you know, a middle school or high school, um, their, their child's in therapy. And, and he's saying things like, um, her pee <laughs> the therapist kept correcting him. Like, yep. Her vagina, like, yep. <laughs> that's what happened. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They get, they get all, it's like the no man's land. We can't talk about that area. We want to pleasure that area. We want to have pleasure in that area, but we don't want to talk about what's in that region. Yeah. And, and also just how different sex is for each gender, right? Like for, for women, it's um, in the words of my husband, it's more of a spiritual journey. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I like to say that men are like sports cars. Mm-hmm. Yes. Women are like classic cars. They need to be warmed up before you drive them on the highway. So true. It's so true. You know what, um, Alice, and I know your, your area of research is in this, but also with vaginismus for women, you know, and, and understanding that medical condition and how that can really impact, um, one's sex life yes. and just how debilitating that, that, um, condition can be and confusing and isolating. Yeah. Well, you know, when all of your friends are saying that they're sexually active and you're obviously you have no way of knowing if they are or not, and you feel like you're the only one that's not, and not understanding why you can't do it. Is there something mm-hmm. wrong? I mean, the question I get a lot is by putting it in the wrong hole. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I feel like there's a door there. I feel like there's, there's like a barrier and I can't access it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what ends up happening is that people tend to start getting really upset and scared and lonely and isolated and anxious because mm-hmm. why can't I figure this out? Why is my body not working the way I want it to work? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And for some people, it's body mechanics. It's not as, as, as severe as a pelvic floor situation mm-hmm. where we need to involve, you know, either a doctor or a physical therapist. Mm-hmm. Um, but trying to understand, you know, no, I mean, how many men are lucky their, their genitalia sticks off their body. Right. For women, you need, you need a mirror yeah. to really be able to get a good idea of what the landscape is like. Mm-hmm. And many women don't look down there. They don't have any idea what it looks like. Mm -hmm. And if you don't look down there and you don't know what it looks like down there, it's kind of hard to understand how it's supposed to be used. Right. Or if there is something that is different. Right. You need to know what your body looks like. So if there is something different, you can be able to explain it to somebody. Right. I always like how you say like, um, there's like these specific times where you'll get calls or like emails, like 2 a.m. Right. Or like after a Saturday night, like there's trends of when people reach out. I, you know, it's, I, 
I used to always say like, I need to stop working. I need to stop seeing patients on Mondays because it's the busiest day. I get phone calls, so many phone calls on Monday or after midnight on a Sunday, I get tons of emails from patients. You know, any day that's like a day off from work that falls on a Monday, like a president's day or like mm-hmm. Martin Luther King day or, you know, veterans day, if it falls on a Monday, those are the like high, because nobody can call from work or when they were in an office building, they don't want to, you know, I, I get that when I call them back, I get the one second, I need to step out of my cubicle or one second, I'm going to the car. Um, but there, there are, and there's definitely ebbs and flows when people reach out for therapy, you know, I find okay. like after New Year's or right after Valentine's Day, you know, mm-hmm. in the spring, you know, once yeah. once kids get launched to summer camp, you know, mm-hmm. it, there's so many ebbs and flows on when people come in, when people retreat yeah. from therapy. It's so yeah. fascinating that you to be able to see the trend. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm going to say something else. Oh, and so, you know, therapists listen to the podcast. Any tips if anyone's interested in going to this field? Like I know you're saying ASECT is where you got. Right. So ASECT is an international organization that um, does accreditation for anybody that wants to be a sex educator, a counselor, or a therapist. They have very um, specific criteria that you need to meet in order to um, obtain one of their certifications. You know, there's education requirements and then there's a supervision element as well. Um, and I think it's important that if you want to talk about sex in a more in-depth and detailed um, scenario with, a, with patients, you need to make sure that you're trained. I have a lot of therapists who think, well, I'm a couples therapist, I can talk about sex. Mm-hmm. But again, everyone needs to check where their values or morals and, and religion is coming from because mm-hmm. I've had a lot of... Um, people come to me whose therapists have said to them, well, um, you know, if someone has an affair, you just leave, you divorce them immediately. Or if they want to talk about an open marriage, that's sinful. And, and realizing that those things are common practice. Now people do have open marriages very successfully. People do recover from, you know, affairs. It's not the end of a relationship. And to be able to speak about certain things like this. I mean, I had a a therapist one time that was seeing one of my patients for almost, I want to say almost 10 years where she was convinced that her vaginismus was sexual abuse and kept telling her, once we can figure out the sexual abuse, we'll be able to relieve you and you'll be able to have intercourse. And the reality was she was never sexually abused. There was no sexual trauma to pelvic floor disorder. And once she was able to do six months worth of physical therapy, she was able to have intercourse. Just a lack of education. Lack of education. I mean, you could be a couple's therapist, but you don't need to know everything about a couple. There's, I mean, I I, I like to think of therapy like a, like a a relay race. You pass the baton when you get the couple or the individual as far as you can. And then you pass them to the next therapist who can bring them to the next level because not every therapist can do everything for forever. Right. And I think if we as therapists could look at it in that way and not have like, oh, you know, I was an able, right? Like I think some therapists like hold on to clients for too long where it's like, no, you can go to your next level if you, you know, find mm-hmm. someone that specializes in. Yeah. And, and I think it's an ego thing for therapists. Like I couldn't get them to become, no, you may not, you may never get them to where they need to go. They may be in therapy indefinitely. And there may be like seven or eight more therapists in their future, but you got them better than they were when they first came in the door. And that's something for a pat on the back. You did your job. You, the patient was happy and they can move on and it's okay. It's not, it's not an insult. You're not a bad therapist. If you have to refer out. Absolutely. Any books off the top of your head? Um, if anyone was interested in um, looking or um, learning more about the field? The field, one of my favorite books to give to everybody actually is called The Guide to Getting It On. Um, It is 
written almost like a conversation between friends. And the pictures are kind of like cartoonish. So it's less threatening. It's and it's broken down. It's a very thick book. I'm going to say it right now. Like it's overwhelming when you look at it, but when you open it up, the chapters are broken down pretty easily. Like kissing is a chapter. Mm -hmm. You know, I think my, one of my favorite topic, one of my favorite chapters says balls, balls, balls. Like (laughs) it really like breaks things down a lot. I mean, there's some chapters that obviously don't fit for everybody, you know, but there are a lot of things that you can learn. And I wish, almost wish that was the sex ed curriculum because the way they break it down, where they normalize everything about people's bodies. I think once you start normalizing how bodies are and, and behave and do people are like, Oh, really? I wish I knew that was normal. Yeah. Right. Right. And, and, and everybody, and everybody wants, to, right? everyone wants to feel normal or be normal or look normal. And you just need one small comment from a person who has no experience at a very young age, when you're shaping all of your sexual ideas and identities and beliefs to say, Oh, are you erect? Is that all your penis is that big? Or, oh, your your lips are that big? Are you like a porn star or something? Like right. One comment that has nothing that doesn't really apply or is just kind of a little bit of a, a dig on their body. And it the years of shame that people carry. Mm-hmm. I can tell you, I have people that talk about small comments of when they were fooling around with someone in high school and they made one, someone, they got a derogatory comment from somebody who they both, by the way, had never had sexual experience before. So where they got their, their worldly knowledge of what body parts were supposed to look like is unclear, mm-hmm. shaming them. And, and that's sticking with them for talking like 20, 30 years down mm-hmm. the road. And needing to work through that in order to feel better. And I think also like, again, we were talking about this, like um, uh, the intersection at intersection of, of different, you know, religion and culture and, um, a body, body image and body positivity for women and men. Yes. Mm-hmm. And in different cultures, it means different things. Mm-hmm. Like in some cultures, there's a, there, you know, a more, um, curvaceous body is preferred and other, in other cultures, you know, women who are very slender with minimal hips is preferred. Like the, it's hard to kind of keep up and what is, a, you know, what do you feel sexy as and versus what your cultures expect, you know, have an expectation of your body. Yeah, there's this book and I forget it off the top of my head now. Um, but it's just about like your body gets to be exactly as it needs to be, like as you want it. Like just that permission of like however you want it to look, it can it can actually be. Like imagine that. Right. It doesn't actually fit into any any type of standard. I love that. That's great. Yeah, me too. Me too. I'll have to get that book and plug it into um the podcast at some point. Um, Melissa, I really appreciate you joining me. This is awesome. I know that our listeners are going to love it. Um, (laughs) and, uh, for our closing quote is actually from Marilyn Monroe. Um, we are all born sexual creatures, thank God, but it's a pity that so many people despise and crush this natural gift. Oh, I love that. It's a good one. Our girl, Marilyn. Thanks, Melissa. This podcast should not be used as a substitute for therapy or mental health treatment. Please reach out to a licensed professional or facility if you are struggling and need to talk to someone.